chapter 6. You go through this book, we, we kind of see, and that's one reason why I read to the end of the chapter, that this is not disconnected from the previous chapter. Uh, it's a section that basically, you know, began with this man living in gross immorality and, and the church not doing anything about it. And, and uh, so in chapter 6, he deals a lot with the same subject. So, and there's a reason for it, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that today, especially then, of course, obviously, uh, by the end of the chapter, he's got some more to say about uh, immorality and, and these kind of activities. And uh, so it's, it's, it's difficult things to some degree, but important things. And, and I, don't, I guess I can't say it enough. When you don't understand what the Bible says about how to behave as a human being and how sexual activity is part of who we are as a human being, and you get that wrong, and you begin to think that uh, naturalistically there is no God that I must answer to, that whatever urges I have are acceptable for me to do, society collapsed, uh, families collapsed, lives collapsed, as they're being illustrated for us today. So what we want to remember as we study these things, this is not God telling us, that's wrong, don't do it. That's right, you can do that. We are being told that God has designed us to think and live a certain way. And when we rebel against that, which is what sin is, don't expect things to, to go well for you. And that's all that's being, uh, as David said, he delighted in the, law, in the law of God because God's way is what makes us thrive. And when we don't do things God's way, we will not thrive. And, and again, this is, so, so it's, it's good. It's not legalism. It's not, I'm just, God doesn't want you to be happy, so you can't do that. No, you completely miss the point. And of course, then the world sees it. They see Christianity as just a list of things you can't do. That's because they're lost in their sins. They have no idea what they're talking about. So we just want to keep some of those things in mind. And so today, we, we're going to finish this idea, the verses 9 to 11, why living in sin is so dangerous. Last week, we saw that we were reminded that those who live in sinful lifestyles are not in the kingdom of God. You know, we make it very plain in our text, these will not live, inherit the kingdom of God. Many are deceived on this point, and so Paul makes a very clear statement about this. You have no excuse. You're not a Christian if you uh, live for yourself, if you don't obey the Lord, if, if you're living, you're still dominated by your sin. And the reason we are not, the reason is because we are not who we once were. We have been regenerated. We've been made new creatures. We're transformed. We have a new heart. So we love different things. So how can we not live differently? So the question is not, are you able to obey God? But if you're saved, you are a new creature, and so you must live differently than you did before. And if you don't, something's wrong. And Paul's making that very plain to us. And so we're seeing how important it is to understand what Christianity is. It is not just another religion. The Bible never gives any credibility to a false god or to a false religion. Because Christianity is not just a religion among many. It is 
what God intended us to be. It is to acknowledge what God is doing in this world. It's the truth. There is no other truth outside of what the Bible teaches. Now, that's not to say there's not truth about, you know, the Bible might not talk about molecular biology or something like that, or, you know, cellular biology. There are truths about those things that the Bible doesn't deal with, and we understand it. But the foundational truth to all that is is found, first of all, in the Bible. Once you get out of that, you will not be able to understand and deal effectively with any other truths in the natural world. You can't get into that right now. And so a Christian isn't someone who has decided they need purpose to their lives. Their marriage is falling apart. You know, I'm not doing well. I need to be a better person. Um, they haven't just decided, well, I'm, I'm going to start being religious. Christianity is about people who have been rescued from sin and made new in Christ. They now understand they have been delivered delivered from the dominion and the destructiveness of sin and given a new heart that now loves and obeys the Lord. We're thankful. We don't see the, 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 the list that we study today as, well, God says, I can't do that. We're thankful that God has revealed to us how why that behavior will destroy me. And while it's good for me not to engage in that kind of stuff. So the sins listed here are examples of how we are to live. Uh, man was created to be that way, but sin has made it where we do not live like this anymore. And so we want to keep in mind last week's message that these sins characterize the lost, not the saved. It's not that a saved person can't fall into some of these sins, right? But we are no longer dominated by them. We hate them. We will not live. That You cannot describe us as these things. Even though we maybe would say a Christian steal. But, it, but he's not a thief. He's not someone who thinks it's okay to, to steal. It's something we would fall into. But we repent and come out of it by the grace of God. He can't describe us. And so the first thing we notice here is we look at these sins in particular. I want to, we're not actually going to deal really with the ones in chapter 10 and verse 10, but once we get to there, you see that all these have, are all really the same thing and that they all depict somebody who is living for themselves and not the Lord, right? So we're not going to deal a whole lot with verse 10 because verse 9 is going to take up enough time as you're going to see and, and I think for good reasons. So the first thing he mentions here are the ones who will find themselves not in the kingdom of God are those who are sexually immoral. Uh, sometimes uh, they are referred to as fornicators. And it's a term for all kinds of sexual sin, in particular those uh, committed by the unmarried, since they are not to be engaged in any of that activity. And of course later he will deal with adultery it's all, we might say adultery is sexual immorality, but not all sexual immorality is adultery, right? Adultery is specifically about those who are married, who are engaging in immoral activities. But this also covers those who are unmarried, that God's design, His good design, His blessing to us is that we are to engage in this 
you're married. It is to be reserved for marriage, and it is a good thing. But those who will not wait for marriage to before they get involved in this kind of stuff are those who don't care what God says because they're not in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> it is one of the most often condemned sins in the Bible, and, and I think I dealt with this not too long ago, that it seems that the Bible speaks a lot about sexual sins. And it's not because, you know, well, God just wants to keep our interests, you know, now and then. No. It's because this is probably the most difficult sin for fallen man to abstain from. It is one of the biggest temptations that we have. And if the Bible says anything, it is that this is not good. You will be sorry to get involved in it. It displeases the Lord for good reasons. So it's clear that those who live in such a lifestyle are not following Jesus. They're not loving him. They're living for themselves instead. Listen, young people, if you are engaged in sexual activity before marriage, there's no way to justify it. It's displeasing to the Lord, and you are setting yourself up for problems later on. And again, I've been alive long enough to, to see it over and over and over again. Then he will add, of course, here in a moment, homosexuality. And that reminds us then that you cannot practice homosexuality as long as you are married. No, it is a sin. Those who practice homosexuality, it doesn't say that it's okay to be homosexual if you are married. No, because the Bible defines marriage as one man and one woman coming together for life. Anything other than that is a redefinition of marriage. It is a profane, a profanation of marriage. You are uh, redefining it. It's not marriage. It doesn't matter what the laws of this land say. The natural man cannot decide to uh, redefine what God has defined. No creature can do that. Now, they can do it. God gives them freedom to do that. But it's not true. It's, not tr it's, it's a lie. And we need to be very clear about that. Now, it's not unusual for the lost, including false professors, to see this as God just trying to make us miserable and not allowing us to do what comes naturally. But the problem here is that it's the same with all sins. What we must come to understand is that God has given us proper and fulfilling ways to live life. And when we do only what comes naturally, we end up hurting ourselves in the long run. In other words, God told us, you know, here's how you ought to live. In the fall, our natures and our feelings and our emotions and our urges are now under the dominion of sin. And so we don't just do what comes naturally, whatever that might be. We are do what the Lord tells us to do. And that's the whole lie of sin that we have got to be able to teach ourselves to recognize and to reject. Our nature is broken. It is dominated by sin. It is ruined by the fall. And so to say that it is okay to do what comes naturally is to demonstrate that you have no idea what the Bible teaches on the depravity of man. Because we're broken naturally. Our natures are 
dominated by sin. So, the Bible has given us light to realize that uh, I've got to deal with these sinful urges that want to put me ahead of God or ahead of other people. And so not every natural feeling and desire is wrong, not saying that, but the Bible gives us the final word on whether it is good or right, right or wrong, and how the avenue by which you can satisfy that urge. We are in physical bodies. We have needs and urges and things like that, but God is saying here's the right way to fulfill those things, and then there's the wrong way. And so this and all the commands are not just arbitrary laws that God has set up. But this is the way he has meant us to live our lives. You know, God didn't just say, okay, now create a man. Now, what kind of, you know, laws should I make? You know, what, you know, and I, well, I'll tell him he can't do that. That'll, that'll fix him. He'll, he won't like that. You know, God's not capricious. He doesn't just have to do things on a whim. He said he's created man upright. And he gave uh, Eve to Adam. He says, here is how you are to live. And and uh, man believes Satan and says, you know what? I think I could be happier if I do what I want to do, which is what the fall is. And every time we commit any of these sins in 9 and 10, that's what we're saying. That, well, I've got a better way. God didn't quite get this right. The fact that Western culture has completely thrown off this command that of, of sex after marriage and within the marriage confines is because they've thrown God himself off. And this doesn't give us an excuse to ignore just because the culture says that there is no God and we're not responsible to them. Paul is saying that couples who decide to be with each other outside of marriage are not in the kingdom of God. Have Christian couples done that? Yes. But there is repentance. They they know they've done wrong. And I told you this story before. I was one couple who told their pastor, well, we're living together, but, um, you know, it's okay because God forgives sinners. And, and so it's okay. Well, no, Christians can't think that way. Idolatry, as he goes on to say, is sexual and immoral are not the kingdom of God, nor are idolaters. And there's a sense in which all sin is a form of idolatry, right? It, it is putting myself and my desires ahead of God. But it's obvious since we were created to serve God because he is God, right? So what else? For us to give ourselves over to another, whether we call it a God or not, to give ourselves over to any created thing, and false gods are not are not actual things, right? I mean, you know, you can make an idol, but we know as Paul well, Isaiah said, Paul said, it's not, there's really no God behind it. It's just a, something man has done. But either way, you've committed idolatry because you have placed that thing or that figment of your imag- imagination ahead of God, right? So it's very obvious why this is not pleasing to the Lord. And it's not based on reality. So it's not, again, it's not God being mean. You are worshiping that which cannot do anything for you, that, that has no mind, that has no will, that has no power, that at the end of the day, it's going to destroy you. 
So as we said earlier, this also means that being a Christian means you understand that there are no other legitimate religions. Christianity understands itself as exclusive for the above reasons. It, can, it makes no room for any other religions or gods, not because we're proud or we hate other people, because there is, there, false religions are false. There's no God behind them, except unless it might be Satan and demons. It's going to lead to hell. It's not based on truth. So this puts us at odd with the culture, and we've got to be willing to accept this. And of course, in Paul's day in the Corinthians, idolatry was a huge part of the city, living in Corinth, and it's going to come into play in later chapters. And Paul says, no, as Christians, we, we turn our back on all that because we know it's not real. There's no truth behind it. So we are not Christians because we personally think that this is the best way to live. It's the only way to live that leads to life and eternity. Everything else leads to hell. There are no other legitimate options. So Paul says, uh, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God, and it couldn't be more obvious. And just before I move on, let me just be, uh, remind ourselves that idolatry it can also be committed when we try to make worshiping God easier, uh, make God less or more than he actually is, and we kind of change up God. Those who try to redefine these sins, for instance, are saying that they like doing what they like more than worshiping God. So, those who say that, well, uh, these things aren't actually a sin, are redefining who, what God has said. It's a form of idolatry. They might say they believe in God and Jesus Christ, but when you say, well, uh, I'm not going to obey God here, then you are committing idolatry because you're putting your will over Him. Anytime we excuse sin because it's too hard to control our flesh, we're practicing idolatry. We're saying, well, I know God said that, but clearly he doesn't understand how weak I am or whatever. We start making excuses. We're putting our will over his. And I think Paul is referring here to deliberate idolatry, that is, actual idols as such. We think of religious, false religions. But as Christians, we want to be able to recognize idolatry in any form, any time we put the creature even if it's our own thoughts and imagination, over the Creator, it's idolatry. And then he says adultery. And again, these, these first few are, are pretty obvious, and I'm going to spend the rest of our, most of our time with, uh, with the elephant in the room here, homosexuality, with that. But, we know that adultery is intimacy outside of wedlock. And I think one reason why this is not just included in sexual immorality, because it is that, but adultery strikes at the very heart of marriage. It, it's what ruins a marriage. And, and the marriage is, in one sense, the building block of a society. And when the marriage crumbles, when the marriage is weakened, uh, and adult, adultery certainly does that, then you have big problems. And that, again, has become a huge problem in our a day and age. Marriage is one of the most sacred and important institutions society has. 
And if it's not treated as sacred, and if we if breaking the vows is okay and commonplace, then it brings ruin upon a nation. It brings ruin upon not just the family, not just the church, not just a, a, a community, but the whole nation. And so I hope that we understand that both of these sins of immorality will not bring happiness. It will bring a maybe a momentary pleasure, but it will not give you what you want. And I think about that. It seems to be so obvious to me. But, but, you know, I did. Uh, you know, obviously we all understand the temptation of these kind of sins. But what you are giving up, you know, by sleeping around, for instance, is intimacy. Of, of having a, a bond with somebody that, that cannot be broken, that, 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 that you can always go home to at the end of the day and know that that, that person's got your back. If you're giving that up, you're giving up everything that marriage can be for uh, physical pleasure. But you relate, but you can never have any real relationship with those under those circumstances. And they will destroy you. Those kind of relationships destroy you. They destroy your partner. They destroy families. They destroy children. Uh, no good comes of it. And, and if you can get people to stop and say, hey, look past the momentary pleasure to what you're going to reap when you die alone or when your family falls apart because these sins, you carry them into your uh, to the marriage, look ahead, think before you act. But that's a difficult thing for so many. Think about what it does to our bodies. And so I would just I say all these things just to remind you to plead with you, both young and old, married or unmarried, vow to the Lord to stay away from these types of sins. You will be the better for it. And again, if you love the Lord, why would you not be vowing to do the right thing here? But beyond that, just think of the consequences and it should scare us, but so often it doesn't. That brings us, though, to uh, the, the last phrase here, nor men who practice homosexuality. And this is really a very interesting passage because of the different ways of understanding what Paul has been saying here uh, down through the ages. He, he uh, as I understand it, kind of coins a couple of words from, he puts a couple of words from the Septuagint uh, together here. Uh, when, he, when he does this, and it clearly means, if anybody who knows anything about these Greek words know that he's referring to homosexuality, but these two words are have caused a little bit of, of uh, interest and debate because the one word tends to mean soft. The, uh, the KJV, for instance, it translates to effeminate. The other word is a word that clearly speaks to homosexual activity. And so, uh, but it's, it's, there's a little bit more to it here that I think when we stop to think through things, uh, we, we, there's some good lessons to learn. Generally speaking, the commentators understand that what Paul is referring to, literally, and I'll read to you, for instance, the uh, lexicon, 
English Bible, which I, I think is a very good, uh, oh, it was part of our uh, review. Sorry about that. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor passive homosexual partners. That would be the effeminate, soft, which the word literally means soft, nor dominant homosexual partners. And that is probably a very good, clear, uncomfortable translation, right? The ESV rightly says homosexual activity, which we understand is that. The older translations, because, you know, they live in a day where people didn't talk about this kind of stuff. So to, to try to have some measure of decorum, the KJV says the effeminate and the abusers of mankind. But we under, but you, you know what he's talking, what they're talking about, right? It's interesting that I was listening to some supposed woman, ordained woman pastor some time ago who decided she was going to explain all this to us. And she says that, well, the newer translations, this would have been early 1900s, that's the first time that they ever mentioned homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, that before that they didn't use that word. And her point was that at, at the end of the day, that, well, this is just white men uh, adding to the word of God, that the, that the homosexual was never in the Bible. Well, just because the KJV, for instance, or the older translations didn't put that word in it, because again, trying to have some measure of decorum, doesn't mean that it's not exactly what they understood, that the KJV translators understood exactly what Paul was referring to there, right? So that, it just shows what lengths people will take to try to deny the word of God. But I say all that to remind ourselves that this what Paul is referring to here are men who, uh, in, in this regard, and we understand that you look around, and of course in chapter 1 of Romans he refers to the female counterpart to all this, and we just think about all this, we know that there are men and women who are dominant in this kind of activity, and we know that there are those who are passive, the way they dress, the way they act. Back in the day, we would call them sissy men. You know. And I, I know it's a little uncomfortable, but this is what Paul is referring to here. And there's a very important point I'm going to make here, but I want us to understand what's being said. And the, what, what we mean by that is that they are not embracing the clear lines of gender that God has made. And so you've got men acting like women, not just in the activity, but just in their lifestyle. You've got women who look like men, and sometimes you just you look at somebody and say, eh, you know exactly what you're looking at, right? Because of the way they act, the way they dress, the way they wear their hair. <clears throat> so Paul here is referring to, in one sense, not just the passivity of it all, but they're, they're not embracing the role as a man that God gave them. And now you begin to see what's going on today. That the Bible, God, this is God's word. God knew what was going to be going on. Of course, it's always been going on ever since the fall. But God knew what was going to happen when people start acting like this. 
So in other words, when we read in the Old Testament law, men and women are not to dress in the clothes of the opposite sex, that they were not to wear their hair the same length. There was a reason for that, because the Bible is very clear that men were to be men, and women are to be women. And we're going to see this later on when we get to chapter 11, when, when Paul deals with the head covering. He doesn't just deal with head coverings. That, that's part of this whole conversation. He's dealing with women who are not keeping their place in the local church and the way they dress, and, 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 and the men too to some degree. It's about understanding your gender role and living in that, you see. So this is all connected. This is something that we see running rampant today, and a, and a lot of Christians are getting caught up in this. And homosexuality is just what results when these lines get confused. When parents tell their children that they're free to be either male or female, which is a lie of the devil. I don't care what the World Health Organization says. There's only binary gender. There's one or the other. There's male, there's female, right? And you see exactly what happens when you deny what God has said. It's an abomination and it's destructive to society. And Paul says those who fall into this and I would say those who agree with what the culture is saying are not in the kingdom of God. And so it's very possible that the gender confusion is being referred to here, I think to some degree, when Paul uses this kind of language. This is why you have, you know, whether you have an operation or not, you cannot change who you are. And, and ha- trying to have a, a an operation a reassignment surgery is just another way of saying, God, I don't like the way you made me. I will decide who I will be. And part of this is not raising our children to understand the differences between the genders and to embrace how God has made them and to teach them how to be godly men and godly women, not godly Christians. And godly men, if they're male, Godly women, if they're not, most of the confusion in our in gender, uh, in, in, um, in all in the people that are caught up in all this, is because they did not have one, uh, either a mother or a father growing up. Now, the world doesn't want to hear that that they they will, you know, answer you if you say it. But the stats are there. Most you know people who go into these kind of sins come from homes that are messed up in one way or another or uh, it's not taught they don't have a clear example so what I'm saying here is that the Bible is clear a man is to be manly biblically and a woman is to be feminine biblically hence the way we dress the way we wear our hair the way we act is all part, I think, of what Paul is referring to here and then later on. And we've gotten so used to ignoring hair and dress and actions by passing it off as something that only um, you know applied to the Corinthians that we wonder why we have the problems we, when we, we do when we, even as Christians, start to blur the lines a little bit. And I realize that, you know, I... You know, not, I, you can't 
I can't stand up here and say exactly how you are to be in every situation, but I think it's pretty obvious overall what we're talking about here. It's all connected. Now, before I go on, let me say along with this that not being effeminate doesn't necessarily mean that a man has to be macho or, or chauvinistic. You know, in other words, when I say a man is to be a man, that can go, you know, in some ways that we don't want to go to. You know, I'm not saying that, but you've got to walk around and be, you know, kind of brutish or throw your weight around. You know, to be unfeeling with your wife, don't communicate with her. You know. No, I'm saying to be be a man biblically, be a man as Christ uh, demonstrated to us. You can a godly man doesn't have to wear flannel and work with his hands. Certainly, being manly doesn't mean you have to be gruff or don't communicate with your wives. We're speaking of embracing your roles of, of, of leadership and the biblical definitions of a man who is to love his wife as Christ loves the church, of accepting the role. Of providing for and protecting the family. So that's what we're talking about when we say a man should be a man. And some men, you know, we think of manly, you know, and, we, and some men can be, I don't, maybe shouldn't use the word effeminate, but we know that, that, you know, not all men are the same. And so I'm not saying, you know, if you have a soft voice and you don't, you know, split wood on your spare time, that, well, you're not being a man. Don't, 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 don't take it like that. You know, I thought if you're not embracing your role as a man, you know, again, you know, I'm not trying to poke fun at somebody because they don't have maybe our definition of manhood. Just I hope you understand that. And I think that while some of this might be subjective, obviously, overall we know when a man is being effeminate or soft in this sense, but he's when he's clearly not concerned with being what God intended him to be. We might even say that a gruff, unloving, uncommunicating, abusive man is being soft in the sense that he is not treating his role as a man as he should, but only the other way. He's abusing manhood by being a domineering jerk, perhaps to his wife, and that's no better. What is perhaps more difficult today for us to really get our, to, to think through clearly is for a woman to see whether she is blurring the lines of her femininity since our culture keeps preaching that women are to embrace everything a man is and they should not be uh, told on any level that they are different from a man or they can't do everything a man can do. Because, you know, know, society isn't, although it's getting to be that way now, I know, you know, we were never told growing up, it's okay for you to to, to, to embrace being a, as a man to embrace being a woman you know that would have uh, he would not have survived probably but from it's been decades where women are told that it's okay for you to embrace everything a man is dress like a man act like a man so you see that it's, it's a little bit more difficult I think it, it, to, to put all these things together when we think of it from a woman's point of view today. And so I would simply warn us that we need to take this stuff seriously. What we wear and how we appear and how we act are part of our service to the Lord. He has put you in that position to live out your life as a woman, as a man. Those things matter. We are not free to blur the lines. 
Men are to be men. Women are to be women. You know, I would just say, women, there's nothing wrong with being feminine. Yeah, and that's, you know, there, and I know a lot of, I know Christian women who, well, they just don't like to, I don't want to wear a dress, or I don't want, I like to wear jeans, you know. Listen, be careful here. Because what happens is you start to lose femininity as a woman. And that's a beautiful thing. That's what God created. And it's so easy. Listen, when someone walks up behind you, they should know what gender you are. And unfortunately, sometimes women wear things that make it very clear what they are, but that's not what I'm talking about. So because from the start God made us male and female and nothing in between, then, therefore, homosexuality, transgenderism, cross-dressing, all those things, no matter whether it's done through operation or just by dress, just confuses what God has made clear. And again, keep it in mind, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear that one cannot be a Christian and embrace those kinds of activity. You just can't do it. Now let me clarify something in all this, and we're getting towards the end. Many today try to excuse such behavior by saying that they were born with these feelings, and so therefore, it's God's fault. God gave me this feeling. He made me who I am. Kind of going back to this idea that if I have a desire, then that's how God made me, so therefore... I'm I'm free to do what I want to do, and they don't. They shouldn't have to repress their natural feelings. Well, of course, part of the problem is that turns this whole passage on its head. Because why is Paul saying that you can't be saved if you engage in these activities? Uh, You know, and then uh, if that's the truth, if that's the case, then. Uh, it, it takes away the need of the gospel because if, if these aren't sins but these are just my natural urges and God made them that way then why did he send Jesus down the cross for our sins if we can't sin because we're only doing what comes naturally and so it just shows a fundamental lack of biblical understanding and there are a lot of Christians who have started to use this kind of logic or at least professing Christians And so our translations correctly condemn the practice of homosexuality and it just as it does those that commit the other sins as well. So we want to keep that in mind. The fact of the matter is that all of us are broken. Not just, you know, you know, I mean, we're broken sexually as well. So, just because you have an urge doesn't mean that it's from the Lord because that's what being a fallen, sinful creature is. You have now been affected by the fall. Otherwise, we would never lust or have feelings we shouldn't have, right? If, if we weren't broken, if Christians weren't broken, and uh, we'd all never have any of these feelings. We should just be able to love each other just the way God intended so if we use this kind of logic, that this is the way I was born, so I can't help, can't help it, we just fall into the trap that Satan would have us fall into. Since I lust by nature, all men lust, well, you know, and women too, as far as that goes. So therefore, um, it must be okay. Since I am selfish by nature, it's okay to steal. And it's always a good way, you know, 
when you're talking about these subjects, so start substituting other sins, and pretty soon you begin to realize how stupid the whole idea of, well, that's just how I am. I'm, I'm selfish, we're, and we're all selfish by nature, right? So does that mean it's okay? That God may be selfish? Some people are cruel and uncaring by nature. They're born that way. Some people have feelings of anger. Some people have a harder time controlling their anger. Can they blame God for that? No. So just because you have an urge, a feeling, an attraction, doesn't mean it's from the Lord. It means you are fallen. And we all suffer from the fall. Even the pedophiles today are using the same arguments to excuse their behavior. Well, I mean, I was born this way. Well, we're all born sinners. Just because we have feelings doesn't mean they're from God. The issue is what pleases the Lord, not how I feel about it. So all this is because we are fallen. It is what we are being saved from and why we need the Holy Spirit to help us overcome these feelings. So when Jesus says we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross, he is saying that the selfishness of sin within us must be rejected, not embraced. Otherwise, what are we to deny ourselves? If Jesus says deny yourself, what we're being told today, you're not supposed to deny yourself of anything. Whatever you want to do, you should do it. It's contrary. That's why these are all gospel issues. Because you're, when you, once you redefine sin, the cross becomes ineffective and useless. We are all broken by sin. Some are born with worse tempers than others, but they are not excused. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are to rule those temple, those tempers. They're to battle selfishness. They are learn to control what comes natural because that's the sin in them. They are to dominate those things, evil desires for the cause of Christ. That's what we've been enabled to do as Christians. So some are born with feelings toward the same sex. No, no I'm going to deny that. Some men are born with a tendency to be soft or feminine. Some women are born with a tendency to act like men, be more domineering. If God saves them then, this is where their battle lies, maybe in a specific way, where they've got to learn to give those things up for the cause of Christ, where they realize, you know what? Those feelings are because I'm a sinner. I'm not going to embrace them because they dishonor the Lord. Just like when I realize I'm losing my temper, that I don't excuse it. I say that's evidence that I'm a sinner, and I, I repent of it, and I start asking God to help me. Christians don't help things when we say that if you get saved, you won't have those feelings. Because we know that's not the case, and, and sometimes that happens. Or that it's possible to eradicate those things. That's not what we're saying. You wouldn't tell a young man who, who gets saved that if you, once you get saved, you'll never have a lustful thought again. That'd be lying. You never have a hateful thought. You never want to steal. You never be have a cross word with your spouse. What we tell them is that by the power of God, you can be delivered from that lifestyle. You can be delivered from those feelings and learn to live and to love and to feel the way you should that honors the Lord. It won't be perfect in this life, but, but you've now been given some tools and power to start doing right, to start loving. I don't know anyone that when they got saved, they immediately lost all evil desires. I mean, I know I should be. But I know that they received a desire that transcended all the rest. I, I, the power of sin has been canceled, as we sing. I now love Christ more than I love my sin. 
Even though I, I love my sin, I love myself, I love my pride, I love, I love those things in a in a sense that I, I there's something in it that attracts me as a sinner, but I love Christ more and I'm willing to start trying to deny myself and serve the Lord. Right? That's all Paul's saying. You know, these are difficult subjects, and with this I close. But ones that we cannot ignore or be confused about, or we set ourselves up, we set our families up, our churches up, for confusion and for problems that we don't have to have if we would just honor the Lord by saying, yeah, He knows best. And if I see these things in my in myself, I'm going to work on uh, giving them to the Lord and not practicing them. We have a gospel that saves from these destructive behaviors and their inevitable end. If we truly love our neighbor, we will not embrace their sin, but we'll warn them of the wrath to come. Those who say you can come to Christ and yet remain in sin have denied the very gospel that led to countless people to hell, and it's exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. But if we accept this passage, it will make a lot of enemies for you. But to capitulate will make an enemy of Christ and make you useless to the world. Because as Christians, we can, in theory, say, look, God loves everybody. He loves all these people. And we're not going to condemn any of it. Well, then we might as well close shop because what are we here for? We're here to preach the gospel, tell people to repent and turn to Christ. You can't have it both ways, right? Churches that have compromised in this should shut the door because they have lost any relevance to this world. And uh, I think the passage is pretty self-explanatory when as we think these things true. Okay, we'll stop there today. Thank you for your attention. Are there any questions?